So as we continue to go through these big stories, we come now to one of our best, David and Goliath. Anybody have this as their favorite Bible story? Nobody? All right, thank you for being honest. Great. Or at least humoring me. It's one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. People who don't know anything about the Bible often know about David and Goliath. It's become the famous quintessential underdog story. And our, it's the story of the little guy who can defeat the big guy against all odds. And culturally, we love that story. But the story of David and Goliath is about way more than just a wily little guy that can beat a big dumb oaf through cunning or through hard work. In other words, this isn't Rudy, and it's not Revenge of the Nerds. This is a story about fear and about faith and about how to follow God in a scary and often hopeless-seeming world. So if you need to hear a story like that this morning, then do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took the provisions, and went as Jesse, his father, had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going forth to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the Israelites, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. The Israelites said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him and will give him his daughter and make his family free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. His eldest brother Eliab heard him talking to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He said, Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You've come down just to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? It's only a question. He turned away from him and toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're just a boy. He has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, 
your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servants killed both bears and lions. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall become like one of them, since he's defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord, who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David in his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I'm not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi, put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. And David ran and stood over the Philistine, grasped his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and then cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the troops of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'ariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the Israelites came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's from 1 Samuel 17, if you want to find it in a Bible and follow along. We read verses 19 to 54, but the whole chapter tells the rest of the story. It was a great story. 
Huh? Could you picture it as it seen unfolded before us? The two armies encamped against each other over the valley of Elah. What had happened was the Philistines who lived down by the Mediterranean coast had come east up into this series of valleys that run east to west. The Israelites somehow heard of this invading force and under their king Saul went down to meet them. They're now encamped on ridges on either side of this valley of Elah and they're dug in and stuck. Neither side wants to attack the other because to do so they'd have to come down into the valley and then attack uphill giving up all strategic position. It'd be suicide. So both camps just stay with their battle lines up above the valley, locked in a stalemate. The Philistines eventually suggest single warrior combat as a solution. It was fairly common in the ancient world. You'd send your champion to fight the other side's champion and so spare everyone else's life in a winner-take-all hand-to-hand combat. And so out steps the Philistine champion, A buzz begins to fill the army as a giant emerges. Goliath. If you back up in 1 Samuel 17, we find a description. He's nine and a half feet tall. He has a bronze helmet that glitters in the sun on his head. He's coated in a a coat of mail that weighs 150 pounds made of pure bronze. He has greaves on his legs He has a giant javelin on his back and holds a spear, the head of which weighs 30 pounds. His shield is so impressive, someone else goes in front of him carrying it. Goliath was a beast of a man, massive, impressive, and frightening, and he knows it. So he comes out onto the battlefield lobbing insults and challenges like artillery fire for 40 days. And each one, as he stepped out onto the battlefield, all the courage in Israel disappeared. Fear covers the valley of Elah like a fog. Goliath casting a large shadow over the whole valley, literally and figuratively. Facing his presence, his challenge, the Israelites are lost to it. Imagining hand-to-hand combat with a giant sets even the most experienced of soldiers quaking in their boots. Did you see his armor? We couldn't even lift his spear. How could we possibly win? The fog of fear covers everything. Fear has a way of doing that. It narrows our vision. It dominates our thinking. It cuts off our ability to reason or be creative. And all of that's actually physiological. Our brains react automatically when perceiving a threat. They literally throw up a wall to cut off the frontal lobe, our reasoning, higher thinking skills, from the process of making decisions. The reins are handed to our limbic system, and our bodies are immediately flooded with adrenaline. Our vision literally narrows to focus in on the threat ahead of us. Our hearts beat more quickly. We are primed in an instant for fight or flight, to run for our lives or to fight for them. And in the right situation, that's one of the beautiful ways in which God made us to respond immediately to a threat and be able to save our own lives. The problem is when we get stuck in a feedback loop or when the threat isn't real. When we sense danger and our vision narrows only to focus on the threat more and more, to fear more, to focus on it more, to fear more, and the loop goes around and around and around until we're lost. 
that's happening in the valley of Elah. Their vision narrowed to Goliath and his armor, to his impressive weapons, to his sheer size and strength. And as they grew more and more fixated on the threat in front of them, they lost sight of everything else. And Goliath came to dominate not just the battlefield before them, but their entire imagination. Only David was somehow immune to it. Likely about 17 years old at the time, he's sent by his father, Jesse, to bring provisions for his three oldest brothers who are fighting in the army. And while everyone else's imagination was dominated by Goliath that day, David is somehow immune to it. He arrives just as Goliath steps out to issue his challenge and insults for the day. And while the rest of the army shakes in fear, little David pipes up, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this guy? It's incredulous to David that this Philistine would be allowed to go on and on spouting off insults against the living God. Because only David's imagination was shaped by something other than Goliath. By the living God. He sees the same things, a giant of impressive size and stature, wearing glittering armor from head to toe, carrying deadly weapons, an impressive foe. David's not naive or stupid. He sees everything everyone else does, but the fear of Goliath does not have its way with him. Because David has learned a greater fear. The fear of the Lord. Saul hears about what David's saying and calls him in. He tells him, there's no way you can fight Goliath. You're a boy. He's been a warrior from his youth. He'll crush you and snap you like a twig. David again refuses to allow his view of the world to be dominated by Goliath. As a shepherd, I killed bears and lions. The same God that saved me from their hands will save me from the hand of this Philistine. And maybe it was a glimmer of faith that David's confidence sparked within Saul. Maybe it was a flicker of remembrance of this same God who had rescued him time and time again. Maybe it was just desperation of having no one else willing to fight. Whatever it was, Saul gives David his blessing. Literally, may the Lord be with you. But that's not all Saul gives David. He also gives him his armor. His armor, his bronze helmet, his coat of mail, his sword. And it must have been a laughable sight when Saul is introduced a few chapters earlier. We're told that he stands head and shoulders above other men. Not a giant himself, but, you know, maybe six foot among a bunch of five to five sixers. His armor would have been huge, and David had never worn such things. He couldn't even walk in it, he says. And yet, as Funny as this may have seemed, this was all Saul knew how to do. That's how pervasive Goliath had become in the imagination of Israel. If you're going to fight a giant, you're going to need the same weapons and the same armor the giant has. If the giant has a bronze helmet, you're going to need a bronze helmet. If the giant has a coat of mail, you're going to need a coat of mail. If the giant carries a sword, you better have one too. Goliath has so dominated their imagination that they assumed they must fight on Goliath's terms. 
Do you see what the fear has done? Not just has it narrowed their vision to the point that they've forgotten they are the army of the living God, but they've come to believe the only way to fight is to fight on Goliath's terms. So they tried to meet armor with armor, strength with strength, violence with violence. How else do you fight giants? David takes off the armor. David lays down the sword. He picks up his wooden staff, makes his way down to the brook, and kneels to choose five smooth stones. It was laughable in Goliath's eyes. He jokes, what am I, a dog that you come to me with sticks? must have been just as absurd to the Israelites behind him. Our fate is in his hands. No armor, no sword, sticks and stones. But as David kneels by that stream, he takes the first faithful action of that entire day. The giant before him has been insulting God. The army of the living God behind him is paralyzed with fear, But there, in between them, David kneels. The only one shaped less by fear of Goliath and more by his fear of the Lord. What are the giants that are taunting you this morning? I know they're there. I know they're real. And I know that they tower over our lives and cast long shadows. Maybe your giant is a health crisis, your own, or of one that you love. And the prognosis is not good. And it stands day after day taunting you, making fun. For every step you seem to take forward, you slide at least two back. Maybe your giant is anxiety. There's so much to do. There is so much expected of you, so much on your shoulders. You could never hope to measure up. Or maybe it's a giant like politics. Our news cycle runs on fear, and billions of dollars are spent to keep you afraid. Both sides propping up the other as a big, dumb giant that threatens your life driving us deeper and deeper and deeper into fear so that we lose sight of any way out but cannot stop watching. Maybe your giant is unemployment. Maybe it's a family or a marriage that's falling apart. Maybe it's the voice that tells you you're a failure as a parent and have no idea what you're doing and you're completely messing them up. Maybe it tells you you're not enough and will never be enough. You're a fake. You're a hack. And you may have all of them fooled, but I know you, and it won't be long until you're exposed. What giant is towering over you, relentless with its taunting? It is so easy to give way to that fear and let it dominate our lives. It's so easy we seldom even realize we're doing it. 
We get drawn into the fear, and the more we fear, the more we're afraid, and our autopilot kicks in, and we're either paralyzed or we take up Goliath's own weapons, and we fight the fear on the world's terms, working longer, trying harder, getting more, proving ourselves. But the more we take on Goliath's weapons, the more strength we give the giant, and the louder its voice becomes. How can we become more like David? How can we break out of the fog of fear and anxiety and remember we are part of the army of a living God? How can we acquire David's God-dominated imagination? How can we recover a fear of the Lord that is greater than our fear of giants? I think it begins when we take David's posture With fear and battle raging around him, we find David kneeling before God. When fear tells him to run or to fight, David kneels. It's one of the most important ways that we develop a God-dominated imagination, kneeling before God in prayer and in worship. In prayer, as we take all of our concerns, all that we are to God, as we pray not just for what we want, not just for what we need, but also make space to listen to God as God speaks. As we join our hearts to the Psalms, to something bigger than us, Psalms of lament where we cry out to God and learn faith in the midst of fear. As we pray the Psalms of supplication and intercession, joining our hearts to something bigger that our prayers might be formed by God's word and not our own fears. Kneeling in prayer and kneeling too in worship. As we gather each week to praise the living God, we come to remember what is most real in this world. Not the fear, but the God who has made everything and has rescued us already in Jesus Christ. And so we gather to confess not just our sin and brokenness, but our need and our lack to remember we've been adopted as children of the living God, beloved more than we can know, not because of what you've done or who you are, but simply because God loves you. And then we take up the word together to allow these stories to shape us and reform our imaginations according to God's faithfulness. Make no mistake, the world around us is using everything at its disposal to dominate our imagination with Goliaths, with fear. And we must take every opportunity in the face of that fear to kneel, to remember who we are and whose we are, and to shape our imagination according to the living God. Sam and I haven't really talked about it much other than to ask for prayers, but Sam's dad, Jesse, was diagnosed a couple months ago with esophageal cancer. He was having some trouble swallowing, and they found a, a tumor where his esophagus and stomach come together. So they made a plan to remove the tumor by taking out a few inches of esophagus and the top part of the stomach and reattaching it all together. The surgery became more complicated than they thought, and seven to eight hours turned into 11 and a half. And the recovery's been bumpy, too. A little over two weeks in the hospital before a brief stay at home, 
When pneumonia set in, he went back to a local hospital, and when they couldn't get a foothold against it, to a regional hospital where he's been now for a few days. He took a few steps forward, but in these last few days, it's been a number of steps back again. And things really aren't going very well. Throughout this all, her father's been way too confident, for my taste, at least. Like when he told us that they found out it was cancer and we didn't even know that was one of the options they were considering. And he said, oh yeah, we were pretty sure that it was a tumor. But don't worry about it. The Lord's got this one. Or when we found out about the somewhat complicated surgery and he said, I'm not worried at all. Just keep praying. The Lord's going to take care of me. Like, is he in denial? Does he realize that this is serious? Does he actually understand what could happen and what's at stake? Does he see how big Goliath is? Did he see the armor? Did he see the sword and the spear and the javelin? Does he realize what he's fighting against as he bends down to pick up stones? He does. But after decades spent on his knees, he's come to see that giants don't look that big when you fight for the living God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, fill us with the faith of David. In a world dominated by fear, lift our eyes to something higher and truer. Help us to see you and what you are doing around us. Lord, take control of our imagination. Grow within us a fear of the Lord that goes deeper than our fear of these giants. That we may live faithfully. That we may trust in you and all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.